0: Today's Old Testament reading comes from Genesis, chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, Your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May He give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Baran Aram to Laban, this Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Isaac saw that Isaac the Esau had saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paran Haram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Haram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahala, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And then our New Testament reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2. like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's beautiful word. You may be seated.
1: It was not too long after I first started my spiritual journey over 40 years ago that someone shared with me this source unknown piece entitled, When God Wants to Drill a Man. Little did I know. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and kill a man, When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose uses him by every act Induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. As we head into Genesis chapter 28 today, Jacob, blessings bearer number three, Abraham. Isaac, now Jacob embarks on a long journey. And God will thrill him. And thrill him. And skill him. And mold him. And God indeed knows what he's about. If I were to do so, I should say that's all of Genesis. God knows what He is about. It is certainly true of now this section into which we move. God, Jesus, knows what He is about at every turn. Israel will need the book of Genesis when he's aged in 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. Israel will need the book of Genesis in 70 years of Babylonian captivity. God knows what he's about. You and I need the book of Genesis, particularly if we identify with Jacob at all, Jacob the crook, Jacob the cheat, the manipulator, the liar, the deceiver, the blasphemer, God knows what he's about with you, on whatever road you find yourself, and whatever danger you fear, and whatever shame lies in your past. God knows what he is about with you. Jacob takes us on a journey that if we have ears to hear, and the heart to receive, we will be assured. She does indeed know what he is about. But there is more. Again. One writer calls it covenant jeopardy. More threat. The blessings plan that reaches back to Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the woman, promised Messiah, the Savior, with the promise to Abraham, given to then Isaac, and now comes to Jacob of descendants as vast as the stars in the sky, as much as the dust of the earth, to whom all the nations will be blessed, pointing to one descendant in particular, King Jesus, Messiah, God with us. But Jacob's not married. In fact, he embarks to find a wife. And what is this? He's, he's leaving the promised land. When, when, when Abraham wanted to find a wife for Isaac, he gave very strict instructions to his servant in Genesis 24. Don't even think about taking Isaac there to Haran, where I want you to go find a wife for him. He stays here. I don't want him thinking that he should be anywhere else. Now, I'm not sure what's going on with Isaac, but Isaac said, well, I think I do know what's going on with Jacob and Isaac, and I'm going to tell you in a minute. Go. Leave the land. What's to become of the promise? Descendants and lands. This is a nail-biter. Never fear. God always knows what she's about. She's never out there. Janie came out of the bedroom this morning after her quiet time and we're navigating the kitchen in order to get ready to be here by eight and she said you know it's not a promise but it feels like a promise to me in John 10 when Jesus says my father is always working. He knows what he's about. Here's my main idea for Genesis 28, 1 through 9, with all of this by way of introduction. God's blessing plan, including maturing his people along the road of their journey, no matter how far they have to go, and Jacob has a long way to go before he gets his new name in chapter 35, Israel, one who strives with God. God's blessing plan inevitably unfolds even through mixed means. And oh my, are they ever a mixed bag in this family, as we have already noted. It's true here in chapter 28. I'm actually going to take a running start with the end of 27 to bring us up to speed, but I see three mixed memes. A mother's obsession, a father's direction, and a brother's corruption. God knows what he's about in working with these mixed means. Let's look at each in turn. First, a mother's obsession, the need for courage. With the mother's obsession in the mix here comes a need for courage. Remember that in chapter 27, Jacob, at the prodding of his mother, cheated his brother Esau out of the blessing from father Isaac that he thought would be his, and he did it through an elaborate masquerade and a lying binge. Esau discovered the treachery, still pleaded for a blessing, he got an anti-blessing instead, and the results unfold in chapter 27, verse 41 and following. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she sent. And called Jacob, and her son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there, why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob, whom Esau married, if Jacob married one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? I don't have any other word for her. Obsessed. Massive control issues. She tells Jacob to flee. She cannot bear the prospect of losing both boys. Jacob the homicide and Esau to the justice that would likely befall him for murder. She exploits the only thing Isaac found displeasant about, displeasing about Esau marrying the wicked Hittite wives in Genesis 26, 34 to 35 to manipulate him and convince him in sending Jacob away. Do did you hear the desperation in these words at the end of verse 46. What should my life be to me? By the way, if there's anything in your story that affects you such that you think of the prospect of it and you say something like that, what should will my life be to me if that happens? You have what David Pallison calls the help of an x ray question into your heart about what may very well be a good thing that you make a God thing and it becomes an idolatrous bad thing. We have a window into her heart when she says, what good will my life be to me if such and such happens? Granted, she wants the blessing to come to the one God has said will have it, the younger as opposed to the older, but she goes about it in all the wrong ways. And one thing just leads to another. So here is Jacob. Mama's boy tent dweller, Jacob. Already a foreigner in this land, and now is being dislocated, albeit to the land of his ancestors, but someplace that will take over a month's journey 500 plus miles away. She becomes a pilgrim refugee twice over. I mean, we love this story that's coming up Jacob's ladder on the road. I'll spend two messages. There's just so, so much to say, right? I'll take two messages to go through the rest of chapter 28. But we tend to romanticize what would have been terrifying for him. On the road. On the run. How many unknowns might he have been grappling with? Rebecca imagines he'll only be gone for a short time. In truth, he ends up there for two decades or more. He never sees his mother again. Where do you face the unknown? What, when you think about the future makes you afraid. Is there a public school child or teacher anywhere in the United States after yet another mass shooting in Santa Fe, Texas this weekend who doesn't have to grapple with fear of the unknown about is my school next. And, oh, Father, we just, we pause and we pray for the people of Santa Fe, that school, those who have experienced such loss, the grief, the fear, the trauma, all too familiar in Parkland, Sandy Hood, Columbine, and more. Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. I so appreciated Pastor Jim's answer to I think Rob finally asked the question about fears. Do you remember what he he said? She feared for his wife and children leaving a relatively safe place, small town like Oxford, Mississippi and coming to a relatively not so safe place like metropolitan Orlando. So grateful for that level of vulnerability and authenticity. That same week, I got an email from a regular attender who said, Pastor Chris, I shouldn't be there. I want to listen. And then she said, what's going to change? And I heard the fear of the unknown. Your fear, my fear, is one of the great enemies of our walk by faith and not by sight. Just think of how often the scriptures address the need for courage in the face of the unknown, a sample Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I'm already thinking about what's my text for my farewell sermon on August 12th and the handoff of the baton the Pastor Jim. And I'm thinking I might want to go right here. Be strong. Courageous. God's with you in this enterprise of the fourth pastor-teacher in this church's history and all the challenges that come with it. Maybe. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house. Oh, I've jumped ahead from 1 Chronicles 28. This would not be a bad one either. Then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous. Do it, build the temple. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Isaiah 41.10, fear not. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, then there's 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Just a sample, folks. So many more. Not the most Prevalent command in the Bible, but right up in the top five don't be afraid. Take courage. God's blessing plan inevitably unfolds, even through mixed means like a mother's obsession. Be courageous, whatever your ancestry and upbringing. Second, his father's direction. Isaac does two things in verses one to five. Blesses Jacob. He does now legitimately what he did unwittingly and fraudulently in the deception of chapter 27 by blessing him and wishing upon him prayerfully all of the blessings that he received from his father, Abraham, now goes to Jacob in this blessing of father to son. And clear direction. Very precise direction. Here's what not to do. Verses 2 and 3. Don't take a wife. Listen, boy. This is really important. Don't take a wife from the wicked Canaanites. They are destined for destruction, for their rampant evil. They will be obliterated from the promised land as I work out my blessing plan. Don't even think about doing that. Rather, stay in the line. Stay in the family. Stay in the blessing progression with your family in Haran with Laban, get there and wait on God for a wife. Why is he so concerned about this? The risk. The risk to blessings plan. If you marry outside the line of blessing, God's favor, we run the risk of hijacking the plan. This is precisely what happened to Solomon in 1 Kings 11 1 to 4. And his love for many foreign women. I'll let you read it all on your own, just verses 3 and 4. Actually, verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Let's think about this for a minute. Paul weighs in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married, whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. See, Jacob is at a crossroads here. He has seen what his brother Esau has done. He is now given direction and correction. He has a choice. Obey his father's direction or disobey. By the way, I will say this especially to young people for this often trips us up. A way that God drills a person often is through submission to proper authority. And it is to your peril, single young person still under your parents' authority, hear me, it is to your peril to step out of wise, sample. you got the instruction like it's given here. I know because I did it at age 20. I quit school. Some of you know the story. My parents just pleaded with me. Go and do that church thing you want to do. Just finish your degree. And I ignored it. Now God works. He's never thwarted. But oh, the consequences. Of not allowing the Lord to bring me up short and hear the protection of the godly authority he had put in my life. Kids, I just can't tell you how careful you want to be about this. And the fifth commandment, honoring your father and your mother. Particularly as you come of marrying age, if if your parents love Jesus, they care freely about whom you marry. I would I would be tempted to bet if I were that kind of guy. Kids, boys and girls, let's just say you're eight. Maybe you're ten this morning. Six I would almost guarantee your mom and dad are already praying for your spouse. They're already praying for the godly man. God. If you're to be married, not that's not everybody's stewardship. Don't misunderstand me. But it is most. And by the way, mom and dad, if they aren't already praying that way, should I commend that to you? Such as huge marker in a person's life. And the scripture is Adamant in place like 2 Corinthians 6:14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or fellowship has light with darkness. I came across a really Good bit of counsel on this from Relevant Magazine. I wanted to share it with you. How should we tread the waters that lead us through the tension of having romantic feelings for someone who isn't committed to Christ? Show them the right kind of compassion, introduce them to your community your church family. Intentionally seek out people who are more fitted to pour into them without the risk of an emotional attachment and pray. When we align ourselves to God in prayer, our desires can begin to match his. We will start to recognize our inability to support the future unbelievers want. our need to provide a courageous example of faith and our commitment to see others first and foremost as souls in need of a savior. A mother's obsession mixed means God's working through the need for courage, a father's direction. Good counsel, the need for obedience and submission to authority. Finally, number three, his brother's corruption, the need for faith. Esau's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He was clueless when he decided to go ahead and pick up two Hittite wives for his future. Had no idea, if I read this right, of how mom and dad were crushed by that. Did you see in the text how twice it said, Esau saw. Ah. The light comes on. Esau saw. How displeased. Strong Hebrew word, evil is the root. How evil it was in the eyes of mom and dad, that he had gone after women destined for destruction. So, what did he do? Hmm. I was going to take another wife, but I was going to the family, Ishmael. not Ishmael's gone, referring to Ishmael and his descendants, and take another wife, he does. She's named. I will climb back into dad, and mom's faces by marrying within the family. Now, are your are your eyebrows raised yet? Are you going? Huh? Is that a good thing? Shouldn't be, because even though yes, Ishmael is a child of Abraham through that ill-advised Hagar thing back in the day, what has God said about Ishmael? He is not his bearer for the future. Isaac is. Just as God said in the oracle to Rebekah, not Esau, Jacob. He is still dense as opposed spiritually. He's still trying to gain merit and get savor as religious types have been throughout every generation. I can do this my own way. He has not repented of his rebellion, which First Samuel says is as the sin of divination or witchcraft and is blatant evil, his heart is not changed. He's figuring this out on his own. And he's become guilty of the reason why every person in the Old Testament and the New were ultimately condemned. It was not because they could not make a righteous, perfect lifestyle themselves or somehow have a better plus on their report card than a negative, it was because they failed to put their trust in the only one who could save them, the promised offspring. The hope. The hope which motivates his dreadfully imperfect, long-way-to-go brother. If Ephesians two, eight, and nine were in his Bible in that day, he would not have cared. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Muslims are in the middle of Ramadan. They wake up in the morning. They have nothing to eat until sundown. They fast. It is about merit making, earning salvation, approval. But Muslims are not the only ones who do that. People do this all the time. I'm a hidden-enough person. I go to church. I give my money. I'm charitable. I do the right thing. all of which Isaiah 64, 6 calls righteousness as filthy rags or a polluted garment. John Piper helps here. What brought a person to ruin in the Old Testament, and it is the same for us today, was not the failure to have the righteousness of sinless perfection, What brought them to ruin was the failure to trust in the merciful promises of God, especially the hope that he would one day provide a Redeemer who would be a perfect righteousness for his people. The Old Testament saints knew that this is how they were saved and that this faith was the key to obedience and that obedience was the evidence of this faith. Mixed means God's plan is worked out even through such things as a mother's obsession, the need for courage, a father's direction, the need for obedience, a brother's corruption, the need for faith. So some thoughts, some takeaways. One, saying no to self-reliance. Say no to Esau's approach, and yes to Jacob's. Cast yourself on the promised offspring, the Messiah Jesus. If you want more help with that, I would love to meet you after the service. I have a gift for you, I'd love to share with you that will help you as you examine more about that. But yet it's by far the most important takeaway from a message like this, as the writer gives us in verses six through nine. One more window into the contrast. Esau versus Jacob. Two, be patient. God's not done with you. This is a journey over a long Road of drilling and thrilling and skilling and molding. Some of you are far too impatient with how quickly God is or isn't changing you. Three, face your fear armed with God's promises and admonitions to be courageous. I'm telling you what courage I had to get out of bed this morning when my eyes popped open at 5.20, and I thought, oh, no, it's Sunday again, and I'm probably going to chomp on my cheek and bleed on my manuscript and drool all over myself again, and I really don't want to do that. Act like a man who get out of bed was the message. Be courageous. And I, I haven't. And I wore black, so nobody can tell if I bled all over myself. The confidence I had yesterday to face fear is not the confidence I will need today or tomorrow. That's an everyday battle until you're home. So fight on. Four, cultivate appropriate submission to the authority structures God places over your life. I wish I could tell you about one household in this church through the succession process Quite honestly, struggled with some of the speed and choices. Lots of conversation went on. I was so proud of the South Pole. Maintained at every turn, though, there there were some challenging things that were said and had to be worked through. What peacemaking church does not have that? but kept pressing in with respect for the office and authority while asking those questions. That's the kind of church I want to have. That's the kind of church I want to give Pastor Jim. Say what needs to be said, but with due respect and honor for the authority God has placed in the church, in the home, in the state, Fears of authority. And finally, five, contemplate, reflect often upon the disciplinary purpose of God's ways with you. Do you love Jesus? The fact that your sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. Do you, th- do you thrill at that? Do you delight in that? Do you savor that? Do you worship him for that? Then know that with it comes a drilling, and a thrilling, and a shilling, and a molding over time. For you to be transformed in ways you cannot imagine. Ways that you're applying yet what needs to be changed, but over time they are waiting to try his splendor out. He knows what he's about. Oh, God of heaven and earth, creator of all things and redeemer. Of peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Author of A New Creation to Come, how much we need your perspectives. How much we need your gospel help to walk this journey. We praise you for your love and your grace and your purposes that are worked out even through mixed means. We believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we ask you.
0: Amen.